Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, when I was a very, very couple... We're just talking about people who were knobs in real life. (laughs) Well, let's... Actually, why don't we start with a positive accolade for somebody. So, I did a pre-recorded interview with John Turode. Uh, the Master Chef star and chef earlier on today, which will go out uh, on the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. And we had some technical difficulties, and he was so nice and patient. He was in a different studio somewhere in central London. Um, but he was, you know, he had come out of another job that he was doing to do the interview. And actually, it's just a sign of a really, really nice person when they don't lose their rag or simply say, I'm sorry, I haven't got time for this. I'm in the middle of something else. Let's do it later. He could not have been more helpful and nice about it. So we just say hurrah. Yeah. Because some people are absolute gits. And Michael Winner was horrible. Yeah. I was only trying to do a phone interview with him, Jane. It was when I was a baby cub reporter. Uh, we just couldn't get the line to go through the desk. And I think I, had to, I literally said, could I phone you back? because uh, we're having problems in the studio, and just this tirade came down the phone at me. And then he just put the phone down. Mm. And because I was really trying to, you know, I was trying to get on and, you know, prove myself. So I did phone him back, and he 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 didn't even bother saying anything. He just put the phone down on me as soon as he picked up. And I just thought, it's only a phone call, mate. Yeah. Like a five-minute phone call. And how busy was he? Well, I mean, he probably... What did he do by well, then? Nobody... He was... I think loosely speaking, of mid nineteen nineties film producer. Film producer. I can't name a Michael Winner film. Nobody can. Uh, but he was reviewing restaurants, wasn't he? Oh, for this organisation. Yep. So he was. He probably had an urgent lunch appointment <laughs> at Julie's Wine Bar. But anyway, he was just horrible, and I yeah. just, I, you know, it well, shakes you. It doesn't matter how many times it happens. Actually, it still shakes you when somebody tirades you. And it would have been to promote something of his, you know, we wouldn't have been phoning him up to ask him about, you know, a relevant political something or other. Mm. I just think if you can't be nice, how do you finish that? Sorry. If you can't be nice, be cheerful. No, is that it? What is that phrase? Uh, well, I, well, I don't know, isn't it? Isn't it more if you, if you can't say something nice, oh, say that's nothing it. at all? Yeah. There yeah. we are. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> yeah. But have you ever had one of those where someone's oh, just really... <laughs> you... Oh, I've had quite a number of difficult, uh, you might call them, celebrity encounters. I do remember as a very junior reporter uh, having permission to ring the home of Dame Barbara Cartland. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> she, she lived in some splendour in rural Worcestershire. Uh, so she was, as far as we were concerned, that made her a local. Yeah. Because I worked for BBC Hereford and Worcester, so she was Worcestershire author Barbara Cartland. She's <laughs> <laughs> very funny, which is what, you know, it's like the newspapers in Gloucestershire. I think the headline was Local Man Becomes King. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> North, North Hampton, Northamptonshire Prime Minister John Major. <laughs> <laughs> Cambridgeshire, I think. Well, I was at Radio Northampton, so we claimed. <laughs> Why? It's only a county boundary, love. Oh, I see. So 
decided to look over the boundary. You decided to claim ours. Right, yeah. okay. I mean, a lot of regional uh, media are a little bit... Um, they can be very territorial. Well, they've, they've got to be territorial because that's what they're all about. Yeah. Um, and I don't think... Did I do... I think I did do a telephone interview with Barbara Cartland, which is arranged through her secretary. And uh, I actually... This story doesn't have a very interesting ending because she wasn't unpleasant particularly. Mm. I mean, she was, she was famous for uh, lying on a chaise long and simply dictating her novels. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, they were They were, best they were terrible. Selling... <laughs> There's a difference between oh, yeah. well, They were best-selling novels, Jane. They were best-selling, terrible novels. Yeah. But listen, I'm a, a, the sort of person who goes to the press night of Metamorphosis, which is where I was last night. I did say I was going to the theatre. And whenever I go to the theatre, as a reward to myself for getting to the theatre, I have a glass of bubbly when upon arrival. And last night was no exception, but there's something really weird about watching Metamorphosis while drinking Prosecco. It just doesn't... It's not. It's not. Does right it, what play. would what would be the perfect? <laughs> well, the last time I Kafka went, accompaniment. Yeah, the last time I went to that theatre, it was for Cinderella, and I've got to say, Cinderella <laughs> was better than Metamorphosis, <laughs> which isn't to say that because Metamorphosis, of course, isn't bad at all, and it's a production directed by Lem Cisse. This one, and it's by a phenomenal theatre group called Frantic Assembly, and they do a lot of. I think is it called physical theatre? It's all very carefully choreographed, just astonishing. But does anybody have a good time at a performance of Metamorphosis? It's just not possible, is it? Well, I mean, some people probably bowled home wiser. Well, it was a, a dizzy old crowd. There was a former BBC executive in the audience. Uh, she looked at me and said, I know who you are. And I said, I don't think you do, but we have met. <laughs> did she think you were me? <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> and I did notice as well, although I didn't get to speak to her, that she's very good company. Yasmin Alibi-Brown was there. Oh, I love her. Uh, and I'm sure there were loads of other West, East, West London celebrities in attendance at this. But um, congratulations to everyone involved, seriously, because it is so slick and it's deeply disturbing and you know when it was written i had no idea i thought it was vaguely the 40s 1915 wow yeah i mean I, that is to me i was astonished by that uh, so that would be written during the first world war um i mean i hope i've got this right i was i was really surprised that it was written so so early on and uh it's just it's just it's it's just did it have an interval very frightening <laughs> yes it does have okay. an interval yeah so if you want to see a man uh, turn into a cockroach and his family be really horrible to him, that's the play for you, everybody. Metamorphosis. Lovely job, Lee. Um, Do you know what? I am quite drawn to Tracy Ann Oberman's uh, Merchant of Venice, Venice yeah. 1936. Well, we did have an email saying how good it was. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd, uh, I might break my theatre fast in order to go and see that. And I, I know that you'll sympathise because you feel the same way about books, but when she said it's, a, it's an hour and a half long, no interval... <laughs> I thought, yep, yeah. that uh, that appeals too. Yeah. Well, look, I'm glad that you had a okay time. No, no, I, I mean, nothing wrong with the performances or the or the staging was absolutely fantastic. But did a little bit of you kind of go, oh, so Tuesday night, it's dark, it's cold, yeah, but it's a bit late. You go to that sort of thing, so the next day you can say, I went to the theatre. Yeah. And you just feel better about yourself, don't you? You're a citizen, a proper upstanding slightly cultured one and people are always so so keen to hear oh, i tell them anyway fee <laughs> all about it i'm going to read an email now which is headlined unremarkable genitalia we're back in the room kids uh, i'm a long time listener and fan from the old place but first time to write in ever to any show 
this one comes from Alex. However, I felt compelled to write in because I've been listening to all of the great emails about unsolicited, unwelcome compliments and was reminded that many years ago my husband had kidney stones, in brackets, apparently worse than any childbirth could be, emoji, close brackets, was referred to see a consultant to check everything else was okay. The consultant followed up with a letter to inform him that his genitalia was unremarkable. Obviously a good thing that all was okay, but he's never really got over the faint praise. All made worse by realising the consultant lived one street away and we've bumped into him over the years on numerous occasions, <laughs> much to my amusement and my husband's chagrin. Uh, thank you for keeping me company over the years. Alex, absolutely our pleasure. That is damned with faint praise, isn't it? It is. Unremarkable um, genitalia. Yeah. <laughs> In many ways, it's something we could all we will wish for, really. Except I think with men, it's probably... We don't want to be. I mean, that's the point of the email, isn't yeah. it? To be thought of as a unremarkable, bit, a bit run of the mill, <laughs> bang average set of meat and two veg you've got there, mate. Uh, good luck with it, them. Um, I did once. Have you ever read one of those referral letters uh, written by a doctor? To oh a yes. Uh, this this perfectly pleasant broadcaster has been to see me today. <laughs> well, that's nice because I, I I was referred to as this pleasant woman in her forties. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I got I got I got pleasant broadcaster oh, on the last oh, consultant's letter. I could only I could only dream of such a thing. <laughs> um, it's funny that, isn't it? And it's, so, can a doctor? That's such a good question. Can a consultant or a doctor please explain? Yeah, why? Pleasant? Why? Why do they do that? I don't know. Because is it? Do you know what? Across my mind, is it a euphemism? Yeah. Well, is it a code, euphemism? Yeah. Is it code for middle class, like all of us? Is it that? Yes. I mean, does does pleasant mean? Uh, Kind of actually not not particularly ill. Don't worry about it. It could do. Does it mean uh, might have gone to university? You know, you probably charge a double. Should still come back or that? Uh, what Just else needs could it to mean? be heard for a bit because she's neurotic old bag. Yep, that. Could yep. be that. Um, so do tell us. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yes, you'll be out there. Why do you say pleasant? Yeah, and if someone's really unpleasant, what do you say then? Yeah. No, that's a good point. And is there a different term that's used for men? Because if we had this conversation amongst a group of women, I bet you know nine out of ten of us would have been described as pleasing, pleasant, amenable, friendly, something like that. Yeah, it might just mean apparently washes, mightn't it? Yeah, maybe the maybe the men are described as strong, sturdy, impressive, voracious, vital. Uh, the sound app is called Soundprint, Jack's Crawford. Uh, so that's the one that you can download onto your phone. And when you're in a very loud place, uh, you literally just open the app and it records the decibels and it sends it back to a central database. So we are collecting information about places that are too loud or places that are perfectly pleasing. It's Etty, actually, who has seen uh, The Merchant of Venice 1936. And she does say, Fee, that it was powerful, moving and relevant. Uh, I tried to see it again, but it was sold out. But Etty lives in Stratford-upon-Avon, so she saw it there. OK. Where it was slightly easier to see it. Yeah, I think it's come to London now. Fee, it will be worth it, honest, she says. Um, Stratford upon Avon must be an interesting place to live, Etty. Tell us more about that, because I, you know, you must just get so fed up with those. What was the name of the playwright? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. Paul are... Abbott. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. We're watching No Offence again at the moment. Yeah, remind me. Uh, Joanna Scanlon, comedy kind of police drama that oh, he wrote yeah. it's just superb right. it's it's not not aged badly right. it is really i just forgot i love joanna scanlon funny 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 his writing is yeah 
What's it about? Uh, so, so Joanna Scanlon is a is a cop. She's a commander of um, a unit, and they do this clever thing where there's one underlying storyline that goes throughout the whole series. Is it a comedy or not? Well, it's a comedy drama, but that makes it that makes it sound a little bit kind of buttock clenchingly. Um, it's just a very very amusingly written drama. I think is what I'd prefer, I'd prefer to okay. describe it as. Yeah. Uh, but there's a different little story in every episode and then one long storyline. Arc. Arc, thank you, darling. Arc is what I was searching for. Mm. But it's just cannily written. I, I think it's uh, it's still a winner. And I didn't realise, actually, there are, I think there are another two seasons. That's a lovely feeling, isn't it? Gosh, and is that available on...? That would be available. We're watching that on the Prime. Oh. Yeah. Have you not... You've got the Prime. Have you got the Prime? Not on my telly. My oh, telly is very traditional. It only takes the normal channels. Okay. You know, I've been having all that trouble with my satellite, and I know I'm the only person still with a satellite, and nobody understands why, least of all me. Why are you moving towards me, Kate? Oh, we've got. Oh, no, we haven't got. The microphone's the wrong way. It's all right. You can still hear you. Uh, but are people getting the best of me? <laughs> I'm sorry. This might be one of those where I've sounded bigger, and that never goes down well. Uh, Birth Memories comes from Kate in Brisbane. Now, this is interesting because uh, Kate in Brisbane uh, has some kind of firm information about this. I've just listened on my way to work uh, an email about birth trauma. I'm a psychologist who has a particular interest in trauma and in particular childhood trauma. What your listener has described experiencing, distress around tight things around her neck with a story of the cord around her neck at birth, is truly a memory. We would call this an implicit or felt memory. It's in her memory network and stored in her body and the emotional area of her brain. And then the story her system reminds her that something bad is associated with that feeling because it never got processed into memory because her brain was too immature. It's like a constant wow. little okay. nudge. Yeah. Uh, my work is about often processing these early trauma memories and reconsolidating them with a new sense of the story, that it wasn't good, but it's over now. You survived it and the heat of the memory is gone and your own natural adaptive information networks facilitate this. I love this work and find it so fascinating. I mean, it does sound absolutely brilliant. Apart from anything else, it's a beautifully written email with lots of enormous words all in the right place, Jane. Well, I think that just hints at the incredibly high standard of our of our listeners. All right. Yes, I really do. Um, and here is another one about libraries. As a new resident to my area, I, like many of your listeners, am consciously trying to make new so social contacts. Imagine my dismay when, on starting to use my new library membership, I learned that all the local branches have self-service book checkouts and returns. Working and studying from home, my walk to the library to exchange my books is sometimes a slice, this is another great email, a slice of social fresh air in an otherwise online day. And being denied that short bit of chit-chat at the desk has disappointed me more than I thought it would. I used to volunteer in my old library for years and I would always say the library is about so much more than the books. It is a social hub. The brief chat at the desk was so important. I also wholeheartedly agree about the clunk of the old ink stamps. What a loss, not just for the audio pleasure, but also for uh, everything that you used to be able to learn about the book's journey before it came into your hands. 
how many people had read it before you, and how often it had been borrowed, and so on. Um, thank you very much for that. And actually, there's another email on the same subject from Patricia in Tullamore in the Republic of Ireland. I'm on a train in Ireland just now, and I've opened up the new library book that I collected yesterday. It brought another library memory to mind. As a child, and even later, I'd be curious to look at the stamping records on the little white sheet of paper inside the book cover, and the excitement of finding that I was the book's first reader in a crisp-paged new library book was just terrific. I, yes, I really get that. Oh, you're at the start of the chain. You're being the first in the queue, yeah, the first in the chain of a book that probably went on to delight and entertain many hundreds of people after you. I wonder how many people would read the average library book before it's put out of circulation. Good question. A librarian was the know. second good question I've had in this podcast. <laughs> yes, darling. Yes, darling. Well I'm on fire. Yes, darling. Um, uh, what was I going to say then? There was something interesting. Oh, yes, books with inscriptions in them. You know, if you if you buy a book from a second-hand shop mm. and you get it home, or maybe you flick it open in the bookshop, and it's got a very personal inscription in the front, do you like the book more or do you like the book less? Another good question. And this one from the other lady. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I I find it... I think it's really sad, isn't it, that somebody has given away a prized, something that was at one point a prized possession. I'm absolutely with you. And that makes me feel a bit sad, and so I think I'd like it less. Yeah, it makes me feel a bit a bit funny about Almost the book. a bit intrusive. A bit like it's not, it's not, not mine. It's not for me. No. Yep, isn't that weird? Because there's nothing lovelier than giving a book to somebody, you know, with meaning, really, and mm. so you write in it. But you're right, I always feel like I can't really buy that book, actually, because it's, mm. it, it's still John's or Patricia's or somebody's. Yeah. But it's a weird thing anyway, isn't it? I've got a, a book, a hardback book, of an edition of The Railway Children given to one of to my eldest daughter, I think, by the great-aunt she was named after. And I, f I find the inscription in that so sad I can barely look at it because it's written by a lady who was already well into her 90s. And, um, you know, I, I just, frankly, I don't think my daughter even knows the book exists, but I do, and I will never, ever throw it away. But I wonder whether somebody will throw it away. They will throw it away because it won't mean anything to yeah, them. Yeah, it's weird, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, all, all this stuff about possessions is actually very, very, very difficult and very sensitive mm. because something precious to you will one day be chucked into a skip by someone. Yeah, and you see, I know you love your audiobooks, but you can't do that with an audiobook. You can't, you know, stamp it as your own, send it to somebody. I mean, you can send it to somebody, can't you? But not, not with the same mm. kind of meaning. Oh, we're reminiscing. Good Lord. Uh, I'm going to try and move it on now. Uh, this is just... Shall we just start talking about antiques? <laughs> Recommendation. <laughs> well, I did say today, I've been completely overlooked as the new host of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. Uh, that's a different story. I can't, I can't be bothered to give John Sobel another mention. Should we just move that on? Uh, well, no, that was, that we need to reference, <laughs> this is, actually, this is John Sobel in conversation with our showbiz pal Ian Dale and telling Ian Dale that he'd been offered the job of BBC political editor but had turned it down. And this, not surprisingly, led your favourite professional carpers to reminisce about all the jobs they could have done had they only accepted them when offered. <laughs> I was up for match of the day 
And you said something else. And I just couldn't do it. And uh, Antiques Roadshow. And Antiques Roadshow, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah, okay. Anyway, look, here I am. Uh, now, this is a very good recommendation from Laura. I thought you might like to know there's an active conversation on Mumsnet about the brightness of headlights and a petition. Could it be publicised on the podcast? Well, it is being publicised now. Uh, apparently, the AA and the RAC have both tried raising this as an issue, but they haven't had very much success. Uh, so do head off and sign the petition if you want to because I think a petition, once it goes past, is at 100,000 signatures. It yeah, does have, have to do something. Yep, it has to be discussed in Parliament. So that is a good idea. Oh, that's right. Um, thank you very much for that, because I didn't know. And that sounds like maybe our involvement might lead to more people signing up. Yes, and it would just so. be a really good thing to be part of changing. Part of changing. <laughs> no, to be part of effecting a change. Effecting a change. <laughs> In our own small way, as two tiny women with gobs, we are affecting change with this podcast every single day. Now, uh, Fee and I often reference our siblings. We're both very fortunate indeed to have one sister each. And frankly, I think we both agree, that's been plenty. So spare a thought for our... Speak for yourself! <laughs> spare a thought for our guest. Uh, it's a very cack-handed way of getting into this because this is a really, relatively serious interview. And he said, is it relatively or is it very serious? Anyway, uh, our guest is Calvin Wayman. Uh, and he grew up in a fundamentalist Mormon community in Utah in the United States. And I'm just looking at it, purely statistically, which obviously isn't the way you look at anybody's background normally. He has five parents. His biological mother was the first of his biological father's four wives. And it was only when his dad granted quite rare permission for him to go out of the community and do a business course at college that he actually really questioned his upbringing at all. He left the cult eventually, although it took him a while, and now lives in New York. And he's about to launch a new podcast about cults and about the thinking around cults. It's called Cultured. It isn't available yet, but it soon will be. So keep an eye out for that if this is something that interests you. Uh, Calvin began by telling me about just how different his life is now compared to his childhood. It's two different lives. I mean, uh, so one previous life in a, on a farm, like around 44 siblings, you know, five parents in a fenced yard, never leaving you know, the, the like never going out in public, didn't even go to public school. I mean, now, I mean, I'm on my, not my own because I have friends and stuff like that. But now I'm in, I'm not in a small rural town that was a farm life where I got up every morning, milked the cow and did garden work. Now I'm in New York City. You know, it's just so different in every capacity. Um, viewpoints on the world, like then it was super conservative, certainly a lot more uh, I, I'm politically homeless, but I'd definitely still say like l more left leaning. Tell us um, a little bit about the part of America in which you grew up. Where was it? A small town in Utah. So uh, the Western states. Um, but yeah, only about uh, fundamentalist Mormonism is, is relatively small. Some people around the world would have heard of Mormonism. But then there's, and some people even consider that culty, but then there's, there's regular Mormonism, but then there's fundamentalist Mormonism. And it's this, you know, secretive underground movement that's been living for, you know, four generations, like, like secretly living polygamy. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's just in a small town, most people wouldn't have ever heard. But, but the point is that growing up in it as a child, you don't know that it's secretive oh, or underground. It was totally normal. Yeah, it was totally normal. 
people ask me all the time, what was that like? And I mean, that's a quite insightful thing you just said, because people, that's what the first reaction, what was that like? It was normal. Like, that's the most honest answer. When I, when I was a child, like there was, there was nothing odd about it. My grandfather was also a polygamist. He had like 70 kids. Uh, my uncles also had like 20 kids, 30 kids. Like my best friends were my cousins because we were all in the same church. Yeah, I didn't know any better. And the schooling you had was provided by the cult. Not even the cult. Um, the schooling I was provided was my parents. So, in fact, schooling, I don't know why I had the certain DNA that I had out of all of my siblings. but the So I was homeschooled. But what that really ended up doing is I had to basically become self-educated. Like, uh, so it just led to my own intellectual curiosities as, as, as a teenager. And then that's what led me going to university and going to university. I'm the first and only one in my family that has done that because it was very much frowned upon to go to university because that's going out into the outside world. It's getting exposed to ideas that could damn your soul to hell. So I actually had to convince my dad and grandfather to let me go, which my grandfather's one of the, was one of the cult leaders. Um, and that's what kind of kicked everything off to, I mean, we wouldn't be here today. It was a single philosophy class in college that, that created the crack in the whole, the whole thing. Quite terrifying. And did your, did your fellow students treat you as an object of curiosity? No, because we were trained to keep it very secret and quiet. I did not talk about it at all. Like my whole life was secretive. Uh, we were we were raised because living polygamy it was illegal, and like having multiple wives was illegal. So we were raised to never talk about it to anybody on the outside world. So if if a vehicle if a car came down our dead end street, we were trained to hide behind a bush or run in the house so that they didn't see so many kids and even suspect that it was probably a polygamous house. So I didn't tell anybody. And your um your mother, your biological, biological mother. Yeah, yeah. What was her can you tell us about her status within the family group? Sure. She was uh she was the first mom. Uh she had twelve kids. She's the first wife. That's what I mean. Yeah, she was the first of the Yeah, four. okay. Um but in my I mean, in my family there wasn't really I mean, it was the dad. He was definitely the 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 hierarchy. The hierarchy. He was the one in charge, and then the moms were like below him, and they were all pretty equal as far as status goes. And um, yeah, and again, it was all in one house. So I have my biological mom, and certainly there's a closer connection with your biological mom, especially when you're young. But the way we were raised is they were all my moms. All four of them were my moms not just her. I don't, I mean, I just don't understand totally. that dynamic. Totally. I mean, it's it, just of course, completely why would you? baffling. Totally. Yeah. Makes sense. So uh, meal times. I mean, take us, take us into your, okay, this your is meal ha- times. Ha- well, have you ever watched Harry Potter? I mean, it's just, it's just like living at Hogwarts. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Like when I like going in like with big, long tables, you know, a big, long table, uh, we, We'd usually do buffet style, so we'd get up after prayer and then get up in the queue, form a line, get your food. Yeah. And was there lots of argument? Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially among siblings. Um, So 
Yeah, lots of argument among siblings. Uh, in fact, that brings up another point if you're curious about the dynamic of the family, because with that many kids, it, it, it almost felt like its own, like this is me just retroactively looking at it now, it, it's like a, its own village where the parents were like the, the government and we were, the kids were like the citizens. And so there was like this uh, kind of distrust in a way where we, like the parents would, could get us in trouble. And so it was the, the siblings, yes, we would fight and argue with each other, but also we would kind of cover for each other. Like if one of us were going to sneak out of the, the house for any reason, like to go down the street to a McDonald's you know, and, and get like, that was, you could get in a big trouble for something like that, like just leaving the property. So we would like find ways to cover for each other. But yeah, just like in school, if you're, if you're living in school all the time, you're going to have the Malfoys that you just butt heads with. And that's kind of, so I had siblings that, you know, that I butt heads with and then others. Well, I mean, there, there were 43 of them. 44. Yeah. There's 45 of us. 44. Total. Yeah. Okay, right. Forgive me. Yeah. Sorry, I just forgot one there, uh, which is probably <laughs> yeah, not that uh, not that difficult to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and do you? Uh, who did this system suit? I mean, one assumes oh, that it was great for your dad, pretty horrific for the, for the women. I mean, I think that's a valid. I think that's a valid uh, assessment. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. I mean, it all started with this guy Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism, and he. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around how he started polygamy, but in my upbringing and what is still purported by the communities in which I come from is that polygamy is a divine practice. It is the way to live. In fact, in Mormonism, there's, there's three levels of heaven and this style of living is the only way you can get to the highest heaven. Which, of course, sounds incredibly convenient. But yeah, like we were taught that, I mean, we came to Earth to get to 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 choose good over evil so that we could get to get back to heaven. And the Bible says to multiply and replenish the Earth. So this style of living is how you can multiply and replenish the Earth, like have as many babies as possible, get souls here that are just up in heaven waiting to come here, waiting to progress. But that's certainly a very like doesn't take a lot to to recognize that point that yeah it it does not there's not a whole lot of equity there let's say yeah it is very difficult though isn't it because the line between cult and religion is actually pretty blurred for for a lot of people that's that's so right and the way I even like to think of the word cult is even the word cult is is not black and white I it's the way I viewed it having to deconstruct this entire belief system and rebuild is it's like on a sliding scale. And so I like, I like the word culty. Like there's a lot of things that are culty. Like when I left the cult, I I left it at first thinking, okay, that's behind me now. And there's nothing else that's culty in the outside world. That's just not the case. You know, there are, there are other things that are culty. It could be something as yes, other churches, other religions, it could be a yoga studio, <laughs> you know, like it depends. Yeah. Like I say that kind of jokingly. Um, but uh, yeah, there is a there is a blur. It's not always obvious uh, what is a cult, what's not a cult. Your father, um, was he a tyrant? Yes. 
Un- yeah, unfortunately. I think that's a a fair Yeah, he didn't really he had a a dad in my grandfather who was one of the church leaders that, you know, who's a World War II guy, very rule-based and he was also my grandfather was very beloved and and I think my dad was never given the skills on how to manage any sort of if anybody stood up to him or didn't give him the same respect that he was used to seeing people give to his dad. And so, yeah, I, in some ways I would describe it almost as my family was like a cult within the cult in a way where, yeah, he was, and it's, it's kind of sad because as life went on, as soon as the kids, you know, could leave the house because they got old or married or moved on. And then just seeing like, it felt like that he had all this control and then just seeing how many of them just fled and, and the relationships kind of just completely shattered. Uh, I mean, it's kind of sad for him in a way, especially as he's getting to the end of his life now. Have you got a relationship with him? I do now. Yeah. Um, we had a big falling out when I left. A major one over simple things like uh, I went after I had left for I was out for a couple of years and I went back for a family barbecue. And this might seem silly, but I went dressed like this. And in my upbringing, you couldn't ever wear short sleeves. And so So you just had a T-shirt on. Yeah, exactly. Jeans. Yeah. yeah, Okay. And and and. uh, We we essentially got into like a a fight in a way <laughs> like he was really upset that I you know was wearing short sleeves and that wasn't uh it was actually the first time any any male especially had just kind of not we, we were taught if he ever uh, was angry or mad at you to just take it like a man what, what like whether you're four years old and getting a licking or you're a 16 year old and getting a lick like getting you know reprimanded as well and so that broke the relationship for a while but then a couple of years ago, uh, in 2022, uh, we found out he had, you know, he has stage four, uh, stage four prostate cancer. And so at that, at that point, it was just like, you know, when the, when the clock is ticking like that, so much of the past just kind of melts away. And so last year, last summer, we, we had a rekindling of our relationship, spent a lot of time together in the summer. And uh, in fact, I'm flying out to Utah next Tuesday just to see him because I don't know how much longer he's going to be here. So that's kind of where things are now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are talking to Calvin Wayman, who grew up in Utah as part of a fundamentalist Mormon cult. He had five parents and over 40 siblings. I asked him how many of the siblings are still living as part of the cult. Actually, a good chunk have have, have technically left. I'd say about half of them are still in it. There, and it, and again, there's this is in stages. It's in because there's there's leaving it as in saying I don't really want to go along with the tenets of the church. But then there, but you're still the, but the, most of them, in fact, ninety nine percent of them are still in the bubble, as I would call it, like in the same geographical area with the same social ties. And to me, there's a lot of it still there, even if you're not fully believing it. There's only two of us that are like out, out, um, like living somewhere completely different. I have a sister that's in Hawaii with her husband and I'm in New York City. Uh, everyone else, you know, is in the same place that my family has been for, you know, four generations. Um, so, yeah, I, if from that perspective, I mean... I'm fascinated at this stage of, you know, human psychology and what makes us do what we do. Uh, there's a lot of things that can actually be extrapolated out of what's learned in cult-like environments to the rest of humanity. But it's it's just fascinating to me. It's really difficult to change, like, your social ties. That was the most difficult part, frankly. Um, people have asked ask me all the time. In fact, I've, I'm, I've collected several ex-cult friends that kind of get it. Uh, I was just talking with a guy, uh, Moses Storm, that also grew up in a cult. He has a comedy special and uh, just last weekend. And the one thing we both agreed on is growing up in the cult wasn't the hard part. Back to your point earlier, because we didn't know any different. The hardest part is the waking up to it, but then the leaving it. The leaving it is the most traumatic thing you can imagine because like we're such social animals and, and feeling those, like when I made that decision to leave, it wasn't just it. 99% of the people I grew up with became estranged overnight, including family members. And so I, I can't remember exactly what, what made me start telling that, but that was the most difficult piece. So I appreciate that you're, you're flying back to see your dad because he's, seriously unwell if if you and i i'm hoping that doesn't happen but if you became seriously unwell would a member of your family come to see you take care of you reach out to you so i'm close to about four of my siblings uh yeah so i i would i would like to think they they certainly would uh the majority of my siblings i'm not that close to it's it's surface level and it's not and it's kind of a it's kind of a difficult thing because it's not like you, you don't have love for people, but when you're, it's literally, I don't know if you're familiar with the old Plato cave story, like uh, the philosopher Plato's allegory of the cave, but when 
it's kind of like talking to, it's like you you were born in a cave and that's all you knew. And so you can relate to other people that are also in the cave. But after you're out of the cave for a while, inside of the cave, not, not only is it not very appealing, it's very difficult to have those common relation, thing, like things that you can relate on. And even when you try to speak to things that are part of your natural everyday life, if you're speaking with somebody that hasn't been out of it and hasn't gone through that journey, it's just really difficult to have connections that are deep and meaningful. Yeah. But I guess in a way, even those of us who certainly didn't have experiences as extreme as your own, almost all of us have left home. Totally. And it's, it's, it is not entirely dissimilar is it it's not in fact that's been one of my favorite parts of the of the leaving and also as i've opened up about it and and started talking to other people is i think there are these uh these common threads of humanity in it as well that are just again maybe people can't relate to having 44 siblings but there are people that certainly can relate to feeling alone even among people that they're around, you know, uh, they may not have been in a cult that is like a toxic uh, thing above you, but they can relate to like, I've had people relate hearing my story, like it feels like a toxic relationship that they were in, like, there's good things, and there's bad things. It's not just all bad. Mm -hmm. And when you're in it, it's difficult to see it. And there's a lot of work leaving out of it. So there's a lot of those things, a lot of those things that others that I think uh, connect to just because yeah with with your experience and from your perspective how do you view um the kind of crazy from my perspective conspiracy theories that a lot of your fellow citizens seem prepared to buy into i'm fascinated by it um i'm not this is one of the things that i talk about with my my friends that are inclined to philosophy and politics and and otherwise um I understand it in a way. Like I literally have family that were at Jan six. Like when it was breaking news on CNN that people were storming the U S Capitol, some of like I had family members that were changing their Facebook profile picture of them climbing the walls. And so I don't know. I, I have an interesting, uh, front row seat to things because I, cause I, I'm in circles that, you know, are more liberal and left leaning, but yeah, I also know people that believe the earth is flat and, and that, and that Donald Trump was the second coming of Jesus. And, uh, and, and on the surface, it's like, how could anybody believe X, Y, and Z? But if there, if you can sit with it for, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, you can actually start to peel the layers back and understand it a little bit as to why it it comes up. And I don't know how much time we have around that, but again, from my vantage point, it's, it's genuinely fascinating to me to see what people fall into, but to see how people came to their conclusions on that side and other sides, you know, because, you know, 
New York City, it definitely has a lot of diversity, but it also, it, it doesn't, it's not, it, every single person in New York City isn't necessarily fully educated on every issue either, you know. Calvin Wayman, and it is interesting there, that little, little bit at the end when he acknowledges that some of his relatives did end up taking part in the January the 6th insurrection, which suggests that people who are part of cults of one sort or another tend to head for that sort of event or that sort of set of beliefs when dangled in front of them. You've chosen every single word in that sentence very carefully. Well, I've tried, I've, yes. I've also been very careful to say cult with extreme care uh, because it is one of those things You've that can, very, can very well. trip up people. But, um, I, you know, I, but I, did, I did mean what I said. I mean, everyone to a degree, because we only have one childhood, it's the only one we're ever going to know and no one ever chooses their parents. It's just, so you don't, on the whole, do you don't actually question a lot about your upbringing, do you, until you are exposed to other upbringing? Yeah, and a little bit of you finds an affinity yeah. with the family down the road and then you take it back into your house and you say, well, Andrew's parents don't do that. Well, that happened when I first had orange beans at my friend Marion's house and we didn't have orange beans. So I went home and said to my mum, we've never had orange beans, I would like them. We only had green beans up to that point. So orange beans being baked, baked beans, baked okay, beans. and green beans being runner beans. Runner beans, yeah. Okay, God, there's a huge leap so It's there. like an Irish trickler of beans in my life, because now we have cannellini and white beans very regularly. Yeah, please don't the start on the beans. The one thing, of course, you again. can't no, do. No, don't start on the beans. Don't start on the beans. But I will say about beans. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got the Bold Beans cookbook, and um, it's a hard recommend, because this week I made a very, very nice chickpea stew. Oh. No, honestly, chickpea stew with dill, coriander and parsley and really not much else. Economical and delicious. Lovely. Uh, can we end with a really lovely one from uh, Roz, who is one of our very international listeners, Jane. Uh, it's called Tugging at My Heart Twice in One Episode. Hello, Jane and Fee. You really got me today when you read out the listener's email about her father cleaning the family shoes. I could actually see my father smell the polish and feel the stiffness of the cloths. He always insisted that the heel part joining the sole had to be polished too. That's dedication. And then the interview with Tim Marshall, asking him if he still looked up at the sky with pleasure or words to that effect. Phew, the sky is where I look when I want to be with the man who loved me so much until the day he died. No, not the man I married. Oh. I know. Um, I'm sorry that I'm yet another listener from Australia and not one of the very rare ones from Tunbridge Wells. Yes, we're not big enough in Tunbridge <laughs> Wells, Jane. We need to do more. <laughs> Although I did go there last year on a visit to the UK, meeting an old friend who travelled down from York. Neither of us had been there, which was why we chose it. But time travel was not what we expected. <laughs> Going back in time, that is. A shout out to Debbie Gracie, who introduced me to your podcast. We love Debbie. A friend I met here in Melbourne, although she lives in Edinburgh, keep up. She comes over every year to see family and we bonded through cycling and she even joined me on a cycling trip to New Zealand. Uh, well, Ros, it's lovely to have you and Debbie on board. And I think that looking up at the sky thing is is just actually quite profound. It is where we look when we want to think about people that we love. I think more than looking into a forest, more than looking into a river, 
you know, we look to the sky, don't we? And I found there was something so sad about everything that Tim Marshall told us mm. about all the agro that's already up there. Yeah. Well, we're just like we're just brilliant at exporting agro, uh, and we'll just keep on doing it. Yeah. I'm not going. I'm going to choose not to see it. Mm. And it was interesting because he said that it didn't dull his kind of. He still had that sense of wonder yeah mysticism yeah. looking up at the sky mm. but uh you know i don't want to think that there are you know a couple of chemical toilets circling elon musk's tesla up there and all the other detritus that's in sky because it's, just... it's where our imagination is isn't it i think tim did say didn't he um although i think we, he didn't get the chance to actually complete the oh no i think he thought it was too distasteful but he did say that the apollo missions had left a lot of human poo on the moon I mean, he completely misjudged us because that's exactly the kind of stuff we do want to talk about. Uh, but he thought we should move on. <laughs> he did. We just want to talk about ropes, towers. We'd have done half an hour on poo on the moon, but he, he didn't want to go there. Yeah. Um, right. Now, we should say you're very, very lucky because on Friday there's an email special as well as the four-day-a-week off-air offering. I mean, honestly, can we do more? Well, we could, could we, we? Could, we? We could, but we're not going to. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, but that's not an option. Oh, I'm very busy with my beans. Right. Um, thank you very much for listening. Jane and Fee at times.radio. Have a lovely evening when you get to it. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, ladies. A lady listener. I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.